Welcome to Embracing the Margins, where we talk about wealth, poverty, and the church. Today, we're going to talk about what's going on in Afghanistan. And I have Dr. Michael Badriaki here with me. And I'm Dr. Matt Price. And uh, wow, Michael, I've been thinking about this all week since we started chatting about um, maybe talking about what's going on in Afghanistan, the, the pictures and the things coming out of that country right now are just unsettling. And I think it's making a lot of people around the world shake their heads and question, what is America doing? What's, what's going on there? But we've talked a lot in past episodes about sharing resources and the barriers to missional generosity. We know that helping can be really hard, and these issues carry so much cultural and racial baggage that it can be really difficult to wade through the problems and get to solutions. Now we're seeing these concerning developments in Afghanistan as the U.S. withdraws from 20 years of Western intervention in a non-Western place. And we say we wanted to help. We say we went to help. But now it almost seems like we've made things worse. We're seeing a total Taliban takeover. Afghani Christians are in hiding and a mass exodus from Afghanistan of any who would be considered sympathizers with the West. In light of our past discussions, I'd like to take a look at what has happened in Afghanistan to really think about the political, cultural, and racial interplay that's happening there. So, Michael. As it, as it, a, a non-Western person, but that now lives in the West, um, as you look at the current situation in Afghanistan, just generally, what's your take? Yeah, uh, hi, Matt. Again, um, I, uh, I've been, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about it as well, as um, you know, since seeing all that's happening in the media and um but and then i'm reminded that the, like you say this this has been going on for decades it's been in the making for decades and the uh so the, i we're seeing this the the proverbial way west and eastern or that middle eastern um region Again, we are encountering the international foreign policy implications of um, of state state to state or geopolitical relations coming to you know an ugly fruition. So, I think just to acknowledge that macro level reality of, of of this and it's involved governments it, it's involved leaders it's involved cultures and of course within cultures like you said we're now also looking at the socioeconomic racial level and we're looking at the religious dynamic as well and of course when afghanistan comes to mind religiously we're looking at a predominantly islamic culture Religiously, the West Western culture is uh, looked on presumably as more on the 
Judeo-Christian side of, 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 of the religious strand. Now, so all, all those broad, all those broad dynamics are at play. Um, so I don't think we'll cover all of those now. But I, I think I want to acknowledge that I would like to acknowledge that the intervention here has always been at a political philosophy perspective. And of course, there's always this interjection of uh, going over to introduce Western democracy so that they can, quote unquote, become civilized so that, quote unquote, women may go to may go to school, women may be part of uh, part of society, women may be treated equitably. Um, so this has been part of the reason as to why, uh, part of the arguments as to why intervention was necessary. The safety of women, the safety of children, the safety of families. And I think to the American taxpayer, this has kind of always been the humanitarian uh, uh, glow of, why this is justified, but I think there are more details that the general American taxpayer does not know when it comes to military intervention, what that means, why in fact was America involved in the first place. I think there's a lot there that, you know, the general public doesn't really understand and know. Um, because you see the plane, that picture of the plane, the big uh, Air Force cargo plane that people are being evacuated with and others are, be, are hanging on, that's a military plane. It's not a Red Cross plane, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's not a mission aviation plane. Right. So that tells us something that there's this component of the military aspect. And in my, it, can, it has been categorized as a humanitarian mission before as well. So what, what exactly are we talking about here? I think the general popular so even church goer might not fully i don't know they might not they, I, I i imagine that there's some who might say what really is going on can yeah and michael you know when we just sitting from from where i sit and and listening in the circles that i live in day to day in the middle of middle of missouri um what yeah. i there's this idea that oh well those are those are Islamic people. And you just kind of lump them all into one big, you know, group. And so, you know, why don't the Islamic people like us or why can't they see we're trying to help? But then if you just take a take just even a one layer off of that and start to say, well, you've got these Shia and these Sunni Muslims and they and they they don't particularly get along with each other well. And then maybe you pull out another layer and say, okay, well, within that, we've got all kinds of different ethnic groups here that believe slightly different things and have their own grudges. If you just look in my own community here, you'll see um, 15, 20, maybe 25 different denominations of evangelical churches. So when we look at the other places that are not here where we are, everything seems so simple. Um, you know, we're going to go in and we're going to give rights to to women and we're going to we're going to stabilize the country. And clearly the, the real people know that we're the good guys. Um, but I don't think it's that simple. I think when we start to look at Afghanistan and 14 different major ethnic groups, 
all kind of sectarian differences um, in beliefs and history between those groups, I, I think what we see is a very, very complex fabric that we've then tried to intervene in and it didn't work for the Russians. They were there forever and it didn't work. And, and, and we were there for 20 years. My own brother did several tours in Afghanistan with the Air Force and flew those big planes that you're seeing um, on these pictures now. And um, I think a lot of Americans right now are questioning for what, but many of us just don't even understand the complexities involved here. And I, I, I myself am questioning why were we there in the first place, just like you said, what were our intentions? What did we hope to accomplish? And um, this nation building idea um, with an underlying humanitarian cause, uh, boy, it just seems to not work, you know? And, and so we've talked a lot about how do we engage properly around the world so that these good things, good things that we see, like, you know, having safety and security and, and the ability to get an education and the freedom to somewhat choose your own path in life. How do we, how do we help get people to those places um, when we understand so little about the places and the people we're talking about that we want to help? And a lot of what's come out here is the idea that the complexity is such that we just can't help on these on these big levels that we try to. So I, I pulled out a, a just an article from CNBC um, from I think today or yesterday, and it's a, it, it's asking why was the Taliban able to so quickly take over when the Americans withdrew? And it says among the main causes are intelligence failures, a more powerful Taliban, corruption, money, cultural differences, and simple willpower. And if you take that list, Michael, it, to me, that list looks pretty, pretty common to a lot of the other intervention stuff we've talked about in past episodes that is concerning. So as you look specifically at the way the West intervened in this conflict, do you see any cultural or racial stereotyping things that came in where we just discounted that aspect? Yeah, that's a, that's an informative article, Matt. I, uh, I, I think that, um, just like it was with the Iraq war, the US going in. And uh, I think, so it's always good to look at this event with, you know, a comparative one. Even though there will be differences, there's a lot of similarities. I, I think we've seen this sort of generic playbook before. Um, so stereotypes for sure. I mean, like you said, when people think about Afghanistan, <clears throat> predominantly people are thinking about, uh, you know, they're thinking about Afghanistan with the framework of, you know, what we are 
against versus what we are for. So, right. Uh, so yeah, they're predominantly an Islamic culture. And then what else comes with that for very many people is, uh, I can you we can name of all kinds of like you said, you know there's a there's a sense in which because they look like this because they believe this and that we we're already distancing ourselves from who they are and distinguishing ourselves from who they are based on what they practice based on what they believe based on how what how they pray how they eat how they dress right um so we're already having this sort of prejudicial um conversation as to why we should even why should we feel compassionate about them why why should we why, why should we even why should we care so what who cares because right. look they don't believe like we believe they're not christians they they don't have practice democracy the way we do in the first place that's what we were trying to help with they didn't get it so there's enough blame to go around and it goes so far as justifying negative stereotypes well michael that I mean, it's a great point you brought it up in a couple of different ways here but before before 9 11 we didn't we didn't have a whole lot of concern with the way talib the taliban was treating women or the way they were running right. the place. It was only after we were attacked by Al Qaeda that all of a yep. sudden um, Afghanistan came on the radar screen, and then it was to fight Al Qaeda. And but prior to that, we didn't have much concern about these different uh, these different humanitarian and cultural issues that that um, enough for us to engage with it. We we didn't do that. It, it, what we did was we wanted retribution for the attack on our soil. And that morphed into right. a 20 year engagement where we tried to become nation builders. And, and so now um, I think, uh, I think your point is, is so good that why did we, why were we there in the first place? And are we really concerned with these humanitarian things or is it something else? Is it saving face? Is it, what is it? Um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit that there's a historical factor to this as well. And it's always been the case. Um, if it goes it goes way back, Matt, um, as to what has always justified the preoccupation of uh, another land over there, another country over there. There's there's a historical precedent to this and I can't name all of them here, but I maybe would give, um, you know, when the Spanish were starting to travel the world, uh, the Portuguese, uh, you know, back in the 1500s, 1400s, there was a, there was a, there was a, the, there was motive as to why uh, they were doing it. And we can now infer a little bit, and you would be better at this than I am, what intent, what intent was there? Um, because for them, exploration also meant they, they were they felt like they were discovering something. So there was this doctrine of discovery, and it was a legal it was legal policy for for very many countries, uh, you know, 
after the this you know the conquistadors uh this idea of discovery went ahead to justify uh you know a certain kind of land that you found even though there were people there and they had their ways of life and but if they were barbaric if they were uncivilized the way the discoverers in quote unquote were not if they were not as civilized as them right then 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 it justified the conquer it justified the reason of being there so i guess even with this like you're saying matt it's it's right for us even as christians as we think about what this is we need to spend some time understanding why 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 was the intervention justified in the first place uh was it uh what does is it in tandem with the gospel is it in tandem with loving god with your mind heart and soul and then a uh, loving neighbor what so in other words I, I i'm willing to and i we could pass it out more here but i'm willing that to 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 guess that whoever starts to dig into the motives as to why the intervention in the first place even though it was justified with humanitarian cause it's very likely that it would be very hard to justify it gospel wise um and well, this is look at if you look just at the uh, the cost just from a number yeah. standpoint and you talk about well there were the US spent 2 trillion dollars right in years in Afghanistan but 6000 US troops died but but here's the staggering number the countable afghanis who lost their lives 100,000 people lost right. their lives that we know about right and that have been counted and and when we look at that wow that's that's staggering now that doesn't even count all the afghanis who are losing their lives right now to the taliban because of the way that we've now withdrawn, I, I think irresponsibly, the way we've withdrawn from this, but whether it's irresponsible or not, just the, the carnage and the toll there is, is staggering. And um, yeah. we, we've, we've identified you know, some, some issues here and some problems, and I think it all goes back again to this, this concept of not understanding what's out there. We we understand what's here. We're we're ethnocentric to our own culture, our own things that we know. But when we look outside that, everything becomes simplified to us. And just go over there, take care of it. We've got a military, we're nation builders. And yet when you're actually on the ground there, what you find is it's extremely complicated. It's as diverse there as it is here, um, or maybe more. And because of that, these these solutions that seem so simple to us are not simple. And it's very unlikely that some Western bureaucrat sitting in Washington, D.C. or in the chair I sit at in the middle of Missouri would know the answers to how to fix something going on on the other side of the world in a very different, complex place that we don't know or understand. And that's why we keep talking about these group grassroots things. How do you help? And, and I want to transition to that, Michael. Reports from Afghani Christians and pastors are painting a really ugly picture for what's going on right now. Our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are basically sheltering in place they're hiding, they're hunkering down. 
Um, they're looking for ways to get out of the country. They're looking for ways to protect their families. Um, we know that because of this Western intervention, we maybe have exacerbated some issues that already exist. Maybe we made some things worse. We probably did. And we've gotten, people have had 20 years to um, more freely express their faith. And now people that have, have made the choice for Christ uh, have targets on their backs. They just do. So as Christians sitting in a place of relative safety and wealth, what can we do at this point to help? What, that's the question. What do we do now to help? My wife this week just looked at me and said, what can we do with tears in her eyes? And I, what's your ideas here? What can we do, Michael? Yeah, I'm, maybe you have a few thoughts, um, but to your previous segment and point there of the intervention and the complexity of the issue, I think it begins there, is uh, while we want to respond um, in this immediate manner, and of course the, ex, the uh, development language there would be then uh, relief, right? Um, but 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 I think that that sometimes is an oversimplification as well of the urgency because you, you named the people that have lost their lives. I think that's a that's a very serious detail. Um, we we bemoan the deaths that, uh, of course, th th there's some distinctions here, but we bemoan the deaths that happened there between, I think, 1940 and 1945 uh, of the people that, I think, over 60 million people that died uh, with, within the Soviet region there in Stalin's world and, uh, um, you know, and, and his predecessors there. Um, and, and then even, you know, this, the Holocaust itself, you know, we, we've seen this kinds of scenarios where so many people have died and some people don't even know the amount of people who have lost their lives, family members. So there's that sadness of this whole situation that, you know, people have, people have lost tremendously, communities have lost tremendously, but again, it uh, sort of juxtaposes to what's happened even with COVID, you know, so this is a very sorrowful time in that sense um, for, for the world. Um, so I think beginning there for us as uh, people of faith um, is, and even those that have a sense of morality is just, can we pause to pray and mourn with those who are mourning, those, those you know, communities that have grieved? Uh, I, I can imagine um, the children who have left, been left motherless, uh, fatherless. I know something about that because I've worked with those communities. That's why I was telling you too, when you shared with me about how your wife and you have been just uh, grieved by this and I shared the same, uh, in, in many ways, just nodding and saying, I, I'm feeling the same because, man, when war happens, uh, the people suffer the most are families, children, mothers, fathers, um, of course, soldiers too. Um, 
So I think just starting there, I, 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 I wish that people who are of faith would really invest in this grieving process, lament. And I mean, the, 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 the Christians who are saying, hey, we're in dire situations and they're sending messages. These are dads, moms, kids. So there's just that part of, okay, can we, can we be, can we, can we feel with them? Can we, and then as we think about what we need to do, um, let's strategize, let's strategize based on knowledge and information of what's best now for the people that actually need the help. I think always starting there, because you see what people have always been accused of, including the one helping hearts thought process and mindset, is that the people who need help are not doing enough to help themselves. And, and so let's unthink that. Let's let's start to realize that, gosh, <laughs> he is just another opportunity for us to, to, to just dump that thinking. I think uh, we need a sort of cleansing. We need a purging from, from God on, on, on what real compassion looks like. Um, and Jesus himself shed tears. That's where he started from. He he showed, uh, you know, he grieves. He 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 knows he knows our pain. He knows our names in a sense. He, he, um, and so, so then after just preparing ourselves emotionally, spiritually, knowing it's time to respond, mm. can we also, you know, we can chew gum and walk at the same time, <laughs> right? Let let's let's. Let's 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 unthink these ways of blame and accusation. I mean, it's time to love. It's not time to point fingers. It's time to, like you're saying, your wife's saying, what can we do? Well, let's let's drop the thinking that the people who need help are the problem mm. to begin with, because that is I guarantee that's going to always come back. Even for the people who are helping, they're going to say, geez, when I went in, uh, I was, you know, it didn't go as I thought it would. So then uh, who's to blame? They're to blame. Right? right. Um, I don't have enough information. Well, this is time to get as much information as you are going. And then this is the Great Commission, right? It's not go. It's as you are going, get as much information about the people who need help. Ask them all the questions they possibly can answer, knowing that they're not going to give you all the answers. Because you have to think of the analogy of when the house is on fire. And if the house is on fire and we know that there's some kind of fire here, you don't the the the, the firemen on the truck come prepared, but they don't ask. The people who are potentially at risk. Hey, can we ask you some questions before we put out the fire? <laughs> can, can you fill out this survey of, you know, how many people are going to get saved? How many people are going to accept the Lord while we get you out of this burning house? Of course, I'm being facetious, but you see, this is part of undoing this kind of epistemology again, like you say, that. Sometimes seems religious, but it's just a it's just baby ethno ethnocentric. Sure. It's like you're trying to you're trying to convince yourself that you're helping the right person. But 
if I walk if look, I walk that backward, Michael, if I if I walk back, okay. uh, please, please, from this, okay, we're helping, and I go I go back to where did this start? You've written, yeah. I, I think it was toward the end of your book, you wrote about the difference between sympathy and empathy, and right. I thought that was very insightful because. If I if I feel sympathy for people, I kind of think of them in one category. And if I feel empathy, I feel for them in a completely different category. And the empathy, I, I feel empathy for my brother, but I feel sympathy for someone who just is really pathetic and needs help. And so yeah. when I if I if I when you say grieve for these, you know, 100,000 Afghanis and, and the loss of life and just all the thing that's going on and, and, and really reflect on what that means. It's not this sympathetic grieving. It's the empathetic grieving that we need where we don't say, well, you know, they're Afghanis, you know, they live there. And so that's kind of, that's unfortunate. It, it stinks for them, but Hey, you know, they were part of the problem to begin with. So that's not really their fault. And that's a very American thing to say. It's the same with the, you know, the dreamers and the, the immigration. And you have these kids that are born in the United States who have only known the United States. Right. And you say, let's just send them back. Let's not provide any other state. Um, is that what Jesus would do? I mean, come on. And, and yet, when I go yeah. to church, and when I interact with people, there's a lot of Christians out there that are completely fine with that because they may be somewhat sympathetic, but they're not. Empathetic. Um, they are not placing themselves in that person's shoes as a brother or sister in Christ. And, right. um, you know, so I walk it back to that and think about even your points in your book on that. And then I walk it forward and I say, OK, now I'm being empathetic. Now I'm putting myself in your shoes. All of a sudden, the blame shifts. There's, the blame doesn't go to this person generally that I'm empathetic with. It starts to go to other places. It, it starts to look at systems that are broken. It starts yes. to look at other things. And I, I, that's, that's a critical component. For instance, when I asked you, what, what can we do now in Afghanistan? And you said, for first, basically empathize and reflect on, on this situation and then start to ask the people who are affected what they need with the understanding that their house is on fire. I mean, I just love that because there's a limitation to what can be done. But what you're not going to do is say, you know, here's $2 trillion, just here's our list of things. And if you do our things for us, we'll give you $2 trillion. That doesn't work. We proved that in 20 years, you know? Yeah. So yeah. If, if $2 trillion won't fix it, what does? And I, I think it's it's not the money. It's not giving it or not giving. I think that I think the critical component is listening and being empathetic. Exactly, Matt. So yeah, absolutely. So it's it's good you've uh, you you've walked it back. You you kind of like Sheila Combs there, you know. But you put the pipe you put the pipe in the mouth there for a little. So that's great. Uh, you, you, and that's it. So it really is going to take sort of this, uh, uh, you know, adaptive adaptive approach of you know we 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 an agility, much like Jesus, much like much like Jesus. I mean. 
the fires he walked into his three years on earth, you just read the New Testament and it's loaded with all kinds of emergencies. I mean, the woman with the issue of blood, no one wanted to touch her. No one wanted to touch her. They were just the, the individuals in society and the culture. So that's where you, the individuality or the people that should have expressed individual individual personal responsibility had checked out. Those people had built a culture and systems that also rejected a woman like her. And they were even as a crowd pushing her away from her getting to the solution, the solution of her issue. And 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 you can imagine she because she's a good she's a good vignette. She's a good story in a micro at a macrocosmic level. And sorry, sorry for using those big words, but at a smaller level, in other words, she look, guess what she does, man? She keeps on voicing her need and she is crawling towards Jesus, regardless of the resistance. She she I wish she had the least path of resistance, but she could she didn't have that luxury. And I'm imagining. If Jesus is all-knowing, he knows she's there, she's doing that, she's crawling through the dust, trying to cut through these people that are saying she's not worth his presence. And uh, he waits for that moment when she touches his helm. And it's not even her voice that he had, but the touch. He said, somebody touched me. Somebody touched me. Somebody's telling me their needs. Somebody has informed me of their need. Somebody has communicated their needs to me and I must listen. And he told the crowd, hold on. But you can see this is Jesus is now, he is reflecting. He is, so this moment you talked about of empathy, reflecting, because what, what, where I was even going with the book, because you know, I have this uh, diagram of, because we all start somewhere and they might start from a place of sympathy, but I believe with God's word changing us, because modern sympathy is exactly what you explained it to be. Now we could find it looked at differently in the classical literature, but today sympathies has this sort of condescending look to it. It is, oh, uh, geez, wheeze, you know. <laughs> God have mercy on them. I have nothing to do with them. They brought me on their side. Sometimes that's what it looks like. And then empathy too um, is a is a is a huge step away from that uh, sort of stand standbys uh, standby effect of I have nothing to do with it. I feel for them, but I I can't. I didn't. Somebody else. It's somebody else's problem. Empathy sometimes. Uh, people can stand in the person's pain and and still struggle to actually have compassion. So I think that compassion is is exactly what brings us all the way and all the way around. And compassion means that you really are now you are walking with and and and. The Trinity is the biggest example of that. God with us because God, the Father, the Son have this community where they are with. They're not, it's not just a 10-foot pole. 
you know, and then John chapter one tells us of how he enacted that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So then we have to think about from this moment of preparing ourselves in lament. I mean, there's a whole book, Lamentations. Great is your faithfulness. Your masses are new every morning. We are not consumed because of this, this, this preparation of the soul, mind, and body. And then how does that start to look? Biblically, it's the Beatitudes. We start to have this, be, these attitudes of, oh, okay, I'm supposed to be a peacemaker and not a warmonger. I'm supposed to be a peacemaker and not a blame, uh, 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 a blame star. I'm supposed to be a peacemaker and not a fault, go on a fault-finding mission before I give my money. I'm supposed to be a peacemaker before I'm, 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 I'm fearful of what those people who need my money are going to do with it. Because this idea, you, you hit it on the head. Thinking about money fast is a fear-based impulse. Let's think about our souls being prepared for what Jesus would have us do first. And then that's reflective. Like you say, this is compassion. And then let's start to ask the necessary questions. And if it's the wrong question, revise it. Mm -hmm. Revise it with your brother and sister who needs help. If it's, the, if it's the wrong question, so that at some point we can assail this idea of good intentions uh, lead to the road of, you know, paved with, you know, uh, paved by, uh, paved the, the road to hell. We need to append that. We think that's a good thing sometimes when people say that they're like, oh wow, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't. Well, we can have we can have gospel informed intentions and we can we can chew gum and walk at the same time because we'll not have all the answers. Right. And this kind of approach, then, as I share in the book, is generosity without strings attached. Because by the time you have done those two steps, reflecting being in fellowship and friendship and relationship and interdependence with those that need help, then by the time you give your time, your resources of time, your resources of money, your resources of material clothing or food or anything, the least thing you're worried about is the trust issue on how they're going to use your money because you've already talked about it. And that they're not always going to use the money the way you think it they're going to use it, but because you are your soul is ready, you are bathed in the beatitudes, you're meek, you're peacemaker. Blessed are those who you're ready for persecution too, because it's not always going to go your way. And now you are in interdependent relationship with your brothers and sisters who need help. You under you have a shared understanding of what's needed, it's not perfect. Then you can dispense with resources. But knowing that it's not going to be a linear approach, it's going to be adaptive and it's going to be reiterative with incremental, incremental realities. It is such a good point that Jesus approached things with a massive amount of agility. Um, absolutely and i just just this morning i was reading through a report or we're, we're coming close to the end of our time 
um, for, the, for this session, but um, I was reading through a report from the uh, Carnegie Endowment 2009. It was a report on Afghanistan. And um, in that report, laced throughout it, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it a little bit. They said that they were trying to answer the question, why isn't this coalition building working for the United States and Afghanistan? This is 12 years ago. Why is this not working? And basically what they said was the Taliban in Afghanistan, they understand the territory better. They understand the local people better. They understand the people in charge better. They're better at disseminating information and communicating. They understand the culture. They understand the region. And we really don't get any of that. And basically what this thing says in a nutshell, in, in my interpretation, is these big political plans where we spend a lot of money, but we're not, we don't have any agility. We don't have any local knowledge. We're not able to gather any of that. They're just doomed to failure. This, this is what the Carnegie Endowment said in, in 2009. And here we are 12 years later, and we're looking at the same thing. Then I think about, Michael, what you just said with the Christian response, which was basically, we want to be agile like Jesus when we look at these things. And there's a progression. You know, when we have great loss, we start with lament. And then we see this yeah. idea that as we lament, we have this we have this empathy that breeds compassion. And it's a compassion of brotherhood. And we say we want to be peacemakers, not warmongers. And as this compassion drives us, all of a sudden money and our keeping it or controlling it becomes less of an issue. And instead, we just say, what can we do to look more like Jesus? What can we do to help? And if that means giving money, we're going to give it. But we know to be agile, we got to listen to the people on the ground. We can't be thinking, oh, you know, we have all the answers because we sit in a chair 10,000 miles away in a different culture, different language, different people, different race, different geopolitical climate. I mean, wow. If we just follow what scripture says in this progression, we find the answers. And I think that's amazing. I, I just appreciate that so much. So, Michael, I'm going to give you the last word on this. We talked to Afghanistan. We talked the Bible. We've woven those things together. I think I think there's a clear path here. But just in a few minutes here, just tell me, sum it up for me. Tell me what you're thinking after this discussion on Afghanistan and helping. So, one, thank you for. Uh, curating this and um, providing the opportunity to discuss. And we are already, I think, modeling this in every sense because uh, we we have all experienced these situations in, in some form. And I would say, in addition to what you said, is maybe for people to even listen to that last summation you have given, because I think that gives them a, a roadmap, a framework of what they could possibly do. And in that process of preparing their minds and souls, um, they should, people should always remember to pray first. You know, sometimes they say, oh, all we have to do now is pray. I understand that linguistically. It means they've, you know, sort of hit the end of the road. So let's pray. But I think we could do a little better by praying first, by saying, well, let's, let's pray. Let's, Let's give it to God. 
So that leads us into the process of lament. And then let's just, and then let's go through that procession that you have really um, shared, knowing that it's reiterative and it repeats itself over different phases of this helping relation and helping journey and service journey. And for people not to be afraid of failure in the process. Because if Jesus is the center of it, and he is in the in-between, and he takes care of even what we haven't necessarily finished in our minds, we can surely trust him for that. Michael, I just um, thank you so much. That's yes. such a great word. Um, we're out of time here for this episode, but uh, there you have it. You, you know, here we have this, this political crisis, and it just looks so bad, and a lot of a lot of Christians around the world are shaking their heads saying, what can we do? There are things we can do. We have to be agile. We need to start with prayer. We need to lament the loss. We need to look with empathy as peacemakers and, and be compassionate. Put, put ourselves in the place of some of these people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ and just, just think about what's going on and bathe the whole process in prayer. And what's going to be produced in that is these fruits of the spirit that we're, we're going to be producing faith, hope, and love as we look to um, what our role is and what will, what will come out of that. The Bible tells us what will come out of that is good things. Good things will come out of that, but we got to start in the right place and understand that we just don't have all the answers. We don't have the answers. God does. Um, but as we look to other places, we, we need to look grassroots. We need to we need to be listening to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that are hunkered down. And and we don't need to be uh, giving them a, a survey or a, a checklist. We need to be listening and then we need to be acting. Their house is on fire right now. And if we have the resources to help them, we need to do it. But we need to do it in a way that honors God. And I think that's consistent across the board as we look at these immediate emergency relief situations versus these other situations where we're looking to build infrastructure and other things. It all needs some of the same process of empathy. So thank you, Michael. Um, appreciate it. Uh, this is Embracing the Margins with Dr. Michael Badriaki and Dr. Matt Price. And we're so glad you joined us. And we can't wait to talk to you again soon.